Trevor Alper in the T1 of Brass. Of course, it's a stoolie. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this uh, Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs. His name is Dave Cameron. Uh, this week, Dave Cameron, uh, there has not been a, a lot in the way of news. There's been some news, but not new news. Do you, do you, there have been very few unprecedented revelations. So what we have here is a series really of status updates. So, for example, uh, we have uh, a status update well, to some degree on the Hall of Fame. You know who's in. Dave Cameron shares uh, some of his uh, final thoughts on that. These are final thoughts after uh, – these are final thoughts. These are the, very, the most final thoughts because he wrote a piece midweek last week of his final thoughts on the Hall of Fame process. These are his final thoughts uh, delivered Orally, these are his last verbal thoughts. So, so they have those. Uh, we also have a status update on uh, Masahiro Tanaka, where uh, where he is at. Uh, of course, he'll pro- he'll probably sign next week with a major league team. Uh, we have following in the wake of that a status update on the uh, other pitching free agents, other free agents who are pitchers. Uh, for example, uh, Matt Garza, Irvin Santana, Ubaldo Jimenez. Those are really the three who may or may not be waiting on the uh, Masahiro Tanaka to sign. We also have a status update on the ongoing situation with Alex Rodriguez. Uh, and then finally, we have a status update just on how Dave Cameron feels about the offseason, which might, which this is going to make for the most compelling audio of all. It's Fangraphs audio. It features Dave Cameron, as I've mentioned, the managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. Yeah. I'm already recording. Okay. So just don't say the terrible things to me that you usually do before. Okay. Uh, can I say the terrible things to you that I usually say during? Yeah, okay. You can do that, yeah. Yeah. Whatever you need to say. Um, you're going to be gone next week? I am going to be gone next week. So this I, will be uh, my last podcast for a little while. Yeah, I was thinking about having uh, Jeff Sullivan on in, you, in your place, um, not only because uh, he's a terrific baseball analyst, uh, but also because uh, I have some volcano-related questions for him. The, uh, the, I think a few volcanoes have exploded recently, so or erupted, I guess, more than exploded. Yeah, erupted. sure. Yeah, and also uh, there was the the volcano the volcanic eruption in Iceland from a couple years back uh, features prominently in the new film, uh, The Dream Life of Walter Mitty. I will take your word for that. Yeah, yeah. You might not see that movie, but it's. I mean, it's not like this is not like a small indie film. It's a pretty big film. Yeah, I I don't actually ever see movie previews anymore since I don't have TV. So yeah. I like people are always like, oh yeah, I went and saw this movie and I had never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you should you should see my reactions to the Golden Globes Twitter feed and my uh, you know all these awards for people and movies I've I've never heard of. Blank. Before. Blank stares from Dave yeah. Cameron. Yeah, it was like basically two hours of like just tweets I didn't understand. Right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe step away from the computer or maybe when you're working or something like this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't reading them in real time as I scrolled back through my timeline. Oh, I see. Which, yeah, two I hours. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Oh, God. Uh, it's not. It has not been crazy. I mean, most of the talk at the, over or since we last spoke uh, has concerned. We'll see if there's been there's been some hand wringing with regard to the uh, Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame voting. 
A little, you think? Yeah, it, yeah there's, a, I guess, a lot. Um, uh, if I could um, characterize your point of view, uh, it's to be that uh, – well, you, you actually wrote a, a piece um, – to, to this point, to say like maybe it was, what was called something like another way of thinking about the Hall of Fame, something like this, or a final, some final thoughts that weren't actually final. Uh, well, they were my final thoughts, <laughs> just because we published another post of the Hall of Fame the next day. I never said they were not my Hall, of, my final thoughts. I haven't written about the Hall of Fame since I pu- published my final thoughts. Right, and you won't till what for what, another three hundred fifty days or so. Uh, yeah, usually like right around uh, mid December. So is I guess when the Hall of Fame stuff starts actually uh, taking center stage kind of after the winter meetings and teams stop making transactions around Christmas time. So, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, okay. And your idea is that there's probably well, – well, you had a, uh, an interesting sort of uh, category. It was like people who regarded as a survey and then people who regarded sort of as a test. Yeah, I like basically broke the voters down into those two categories, which is overly broad and not an accurate representation of the shades of gray of which voters vote with. Uh, but I do think that there is a decent amount of animosity that comes between, uh, probably, you know, the mostly younger crowd who I think sees this, uh, you know, the, the giving of a Hall of Fame ballot as a responsibility to find the correct answer. So I think some people of our community kind of see the people who have a vote as stewards of, uh, kind of, you know, the ability of baseball's Hall of Fame to actually honor the best players of all time and to be the museum that, that we feel it's supposed to be, where people, some some voters who've been voting for a long time, think this is more of just a opinion poll where this is their opportunity to say whatever they want about whatever players they want to say. So then you have guys voting for Hideo Nomo and Jack Morris, but not Greg Maddox for the Hall of Fame, and those kinds of ballots can infuriate people. Because you say, well, if... If you're going far enough into the available pool of players to select Jack Morris, who had, I don't know, what did he have, 50 career war or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Uh, and, and you don't select Greg Maddox, who had, what, twice that? 100, 125. 125, right. Then uh, then you're you're a crazy person is the, is the argument. You, you yeah. have something seriously. Whereas whoever does that, I think, uh, well, Ken Gurnick most notably, right, had the, just Jack Morris, but – yeah, I think the is I mean the I think and I could be wrong. Uh you know, people have reasons to be upset for various reasons and they have their own uh you know, high horses to to get on. I think in general the people that I see that are most outraged by ballots like that are not so outraged to the fact that you're a crazy person for not realizing that Jack Morris is as good as Greg Maddox. I think everybody realizes that. It's the uh illogically uh, inconsistent approach to filling out the ballot. Kind of like a, an umpire with a strike zone, right? Like, we don't necessarily care if the strike zone is called perfectly in an entire game as long as the umpire calls it the same for both squads. He applies the same strike zone for all nine innings. We're okay with it. Even if the pitch is, you know, three inches outside is called a strike, hitters can adapt, and, you know, we're, we're generally okay with consistency even if it's not correct consistency. Well, I think where people begin to have a problem is where it's three inches outside for one team and six inches outside for the other team. Uh, that begins to be a little annoying. And I think when we see voters like the guy from New Jersey who, uh, well, I guess he lives in D.C. now, doesn't even cover baseball. He teaches at a high school. Uh, he votes for Morris and Nomo and Alan Trammell and Tim Raines and says, I'm not going to vote for anyone from the steroids era, but I'm making an exception for Hideo Nomo because I wrote a book about him. Like, that's... <laughs> 
that drives people nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, which isn't to say that it, uh, you know, he might be providing a, a valuable service uh, with the, the youth of, of that area, um, but he might want to um, um, maybe use the same sort of rigor that he'd expect of his students in, uh, in his Hall of Fame selection. Right, yeah. I, I think those are the kinds of balance that they don't represent the whole of the BBWAA, but there's so many of them that are so easy to scorn that a lot of people see this as – um, you know, the voters not taking their job seriously. And this is an example, I think, of, of a voter seeing his, his ballot as a, of opinion poll, where the Hall of Fame is just asking him what he thinks, and he thinks all the steroid users and, you know, basically anyone who played regularly after 1994 should be considered guilty, uh, because they didn't root steroids out of the game by themselves. And so, uh, he's not gonna vote for anyone, uh, to vote, to play in the Hall of Fame who played after that point, even Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and people that no one thinks <laughs> use steroids. Uh, but he is gonna vote for, you know, unqualified candidates that he remembers fondly from the 80s for, you know, no reason <laughs> that we can see. So, I think it's ballots like that that, uh, really drive a lot of the animosity between kind of the people who see it as a test and people who see it as a survey. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think the point of the article was we're never going to be able to get rid of that kind of viewpoint. I think some people are always going to see it one way or the other, and that's going to drive frustration between the two sides. You know, uh, Greg Maddox uh, should get a book written by uh, by him. Um, he do, he has one, only one, uh, just a quick... Um, just a quick search reveals there's only one. It's called On the Mound with Greg Maddox. Uh, and it was written by Matt Christopher, actually, uh, famed, <laughs> famed novelist. Um, yeah, uh, On the Mound with Greg, it's a, uh, it's a bio, it's a, it's a sort of a biography for, for children. It looks like it's sort of one of these things that, uh, you could buy through Scholastic Book Club, uh, when you were in second and third grade. Is this the same people who did, like, the Book It and gave you a free pizza? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, well, I remember, so, okay. sort of similar, yeah, right. Sort of a similar, a similar arrangement, and it's from 1997. So he maybe needs, he needs a new, he needs a new book. He should get a quality, like he should get Roger Angel or something to write a book about him. If, and then, uh, if only this was a podcast uh, being created by people who write about baseball for a living. He, he <laughs> yeah, but we're not going to do it. <laughs> All right, well, I'm not going to write a book. Yeah, no. Why would we do that? I'll write a blurb on the book. Read this book, and also maybe elect. Greg Maddox to the Hall of Fame. Of course, he did. Yeah. He did it anyway. I bet if it was not Greg Maddox, if it was like Charlie Blackman, you would write a book. Yeah. Here's the. Here's a. If I can mention a, a, something with regard to the voting, is that a lot of the arguments. So first of all, no, at no point do I think men are dumber dummies, and I'm talking about men, the gender of men, because it's mostly men who are involved in this conversation. At no point do I think they're gianter dummies than during Hall of Fame season, because the level of concern that people have for uh, like protecting and, and use they were using words like integrity and virtue and honor uh they, they, this is men behaving men behaving at, they're at their silliest then uh the other thing is that all of the votes that are not like directly based on merit like the the votes for I guess Jack Morris, who, who, by whom some sort of random standards you could say was very good, but not by any, like, actual, you know, like actually sort of uh, standards that uh, correlate with actual, you know, wins or whatever. Um, but it, there, there's a lot of conversation about like masculine virtue, right? Like he he was a gamer, right? Uh, yeah. Or um, you know he he finished what he started, 
Right. Right. This is all just conversations about being a man. I, I Do you think of any instances in which someone voted for a player just because he thought he was neat? Like, like, did anyone vote like, oh, yeah, I want Oscar Gamble because he had the best afro during the 70s and 80s or something like this? Can you uh, think of any instances in which there are sort of just like a caprice vote like that? Not that a guy got elected for that. I think – I mean, there probably are. I'm not like a good enough historian to know. Uh, I know like Frankie Frisch is known for gotten gotten a lot of his teammates in, uh, and maybe he was able to you know uh, sway some of his fellow veterans committee or whatever the committee was called at the time uh, voters by telling them stories of you know drinking and and you know fornicating and and winning them over with his personality. Um, but I you know I'm I don't know those offhand. I don't think in recent years we've seen too many players get in. Uh, based solely on how nice of a guy he was, but I think we have seen a little bit of an uptick in, uh, some people voting along the lines of, you know, Jim Rice, where he essentially got in because of the fear, right? Like that was the narrative of Jim Rice, is he was the most feared hitter of the 80s, or the most feared hitter of his time. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, you know, he only had about a three year peak where he was really good, and then he had about a 15 year mediocrity where he was just average or a little above. Um, but, you know, for some writers who remember those three years, they thought Jim Rice was always that, and they didn't notice his decline phase, essentially, and they gave him the, th- the three-year uh, reputation over the course of 20 years and elected him for that. Uh, so I think, you know, along those lines, we do see voters voting for personality traits or, um, you know, kind of intimidation, but I don't know that that was something that was inherent to Rice as much as it was just inherent to the way that voters overvalued his type of player. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will say, uh, <clears throat> I had a friend whose father was, uh, I believe it was something like along the lines of the team psychiatrist for the Pawtucket Red Sox. Okay. And, um, uh, he was working with some of the players and Jim Rice came in and told him, told him to stop. And, uh, uh my friend, uh, my friend's father was uh, afraid of him then. Yeah, I'm sure Jim Rice was probably a pretty intimidating dude. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, so he has fear both on and off the field. Right. Was, yeah. Jim Rice did provide the fear. Yeah, just, although now no. he just seems kind of like – because he does studio analysis. It's hard to be really scary if you're doing studio analysis every day. He sort of uh, – uh, That's a good like, what, what kind of evil person could you put into like a broadcast studio and have them still come off as scary? Like could you get like Joseph Stalin and put him in like the TBS box and you'd still be like, oh my god, I'm scared of that guy? Or would you just be like, eh, Joseph yeah. Stalin has been neutered. Yeah, right. Well, I think anytime anyone has to speak for this, like, uh, anytime anyone has to speak, uh, spontaneously for three hours or, you know, maybe for whatever, half hour on either side of a, of a game, the, the intimidating qualities wear off because you start to see that they're fallible because extemporaneous speaking, even the best, uh, practitioners of it, uh, look like idiots sometimes. It's it's hard. I think silence and I think making um, frightening expressions is really important to being uh, frightening. So if if someone wanted to appear intimidating on a studio show, they should just sit there and say nothing, mm-hmm. just like stare into the camera. Yeah, but that's not very good television. Right? No, yeah, it's really really yeah, it's not. not very good. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so that's the Hall of Fame. I mean, there's like a hundred things to say about it, but uh, I don't know if there are any. They've more. all been they've all been said. They've all been said. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, okay. Uh, give us the Tanaka update right now. There is none. Oh. I, you know that's not totally true. He, so he flew to Los Angeles last week. Uh, he had an uh, kind of an MRI medical exam. 
uh, at the Job Clinic that he could hand one medical report to all 30 teams so that they weren't, uh, you know, speculating or trying to acquire old medical records. Uh, so all the teams that are interested now have the same medical file and can go off that information. Uh, supposedly he met in person with eight or nine teams. We know the White Sox are one of them because the White Sox actually publicly confirmed that they were one of them. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, we assume that the Yankees and the Angels and the Dodgers and the Cubs and all the other teams that have been linked to him probably met with him too. Uh, he's since returned to Japan and, uh, you know, bidding will commence, uh, probably this week and, and wrap up next week. Uh, and I think we'll get an announcement, uh, middle of next week or so. Right, and where you, when you will be on vacation. And that is, that is my plan. I am getting out of here and forcing Jeff Sullivan to do all this writing because he went on a two week vacation when every transaction happened and, and, right, right. uh, <laughs> he's, he, he's due for some, some breaking news. Well, in, in, because the, the, what we expect, uh, we've probably mentioned this before, is that once Tanaka signs, then there will be, then other pitchers have said, because there has not been a lot in the way, well, I guess, uh, what, Jason Vargas signed, right? Yeah. Um, Maybe, uh, did Scott Casimir sign? That sounds like something he, to happen. He did. R- Ricky Nolasco, probably Ricky. the top free agent pitcher to sign so far. To, uh, to sign so far, right. But uh, we still have uh, Matt Garza, Ubaldo Jimenez, and there's probably a third guy. I'm Ir- Irvin Santana. Yeah. Irvin Santana, right. So those, yeah. those guys aren't, they're not, they're not the highest end, um, free agent pitchers we've seen in recent years, but, uh, they'll help a team. But they yeah. won't, but they won't be helping it, well, they won't be helping a team till April, uh, <laughs> really, but, uh, they won't be even, uh, affiliated with the team until after Tanaka signs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible that one could sign before Tanaka's official. Like, my guess is that the negotiations are going to unfold in a way in which, you know, some of these teams realize they're out before the announcement. Like, you know, maybe uh, the Angels are bidding $125 million over six years, and, uh, you know, Casey Close comes to them and says, hey, I've got an offer on the table for $175 million. You're not even close. Do you want to up your bid? They say no, and then they go sign Matt Garza. And so, you know, I think... Uh, as the negotiations for, um, Tanaka get a little more serious, we can see, you know, a guy like Garza or, or Santana or Jimenez come off the board, but most likely they're all going to wait until after Tanaka actually signs in order to see what the actual final price was. Okay. And then the, the other, the A-Rod situation, this is a thing which has happened is that, uh, well, of course it's, it's been true for, uh, months now since the middle of the season, I guess, where, um, Alex Rodriguez is part of the Biogenesis report. He was originally suspended for what, 212 11, games? 211. Yeah, yeah 211 yeah. games. And then, uh, it was just reduced. He appealed that it. it was just reduced to, well, to 162, but he's, so he's gonna miss a season, is the idea. Yeah. Correct. Uh, but is he really going to miss a season? Because it seems like Wendy Thurm, uh, and of course she's a, a, a lawyer. She studied law. She understands this sort of thing. It seems like she's, uh, uh, if, A-Rod's, um, A-Rod's defense team will uh, appeal, but it will not help them. Yeah, I think the general consensus is that he can sue in federal court, but it's not going to do him any good. And I hear some, was there some hanky-panky? I don't know if hanky-panky is the right word. But this is a different arbitrator than the most recent arbitrator. Is that the yeah. thing that happened? So Major League Baseball uh, picks its own arbitrator, and <laughs> uh, if you don't rule in their favor, they fire you. Okay. Which, you know, it's a good way to win cases. <laughs> if um, you seems... know that if you rule for one side, you get to keep the job. If you rule for the other side, you lose the job. Mm-hmm. It might influence your decision. Yeah, it's always this sort of thing. It's like, you know, you hear sometimes arguments. People say, uh, um, 
you know, with regard to the economy of service, oh, you know, there should be less um, intervention. There should be less intervention, less rules and regulations. And maybe, right. you know, what do I know? Maybe in some cases this is true. But you do notice because, of course, Major League Baseball does work frequently as a monopoly um, and does have a lot of power. Uh, you do notice that the uh, owners and uh, the league, anytime they can sort of uh, use their power to their advantage, they do it real hard. Yeah, they're they're not shy about exploiting their uh, ability to um, take advantage of the system when the system is stacked in their deck. And, you know, even when it's not, they find ways of, you know, the Atlanta Braves get a new stadium and uh, 20 miles from their old stadium uh, just because they could. Yeah, so uh, so it doesn't look – so the I guess it did – it doesn't look good for A-Rod, but it also seems like maybe if this had happened to even a slightly um, a more – uh, a, a figure with whom it would be possible to feel um, any sort of sympathy, for whom it would be possible to feel sympathy, this would be better. But he, he's really one of the – there's not a lot of people on his side, it seems like. Yeah, I think if, if, uh, I think if there's an interesting aspect of this story – and, you know, I, I know some people are really involved in the, the A-Rod PEDs discussion that doesn't interest me at all. For me, if there's an interesting side of this discussion, there's two potentially. Uh, it's the question of – how this affects the union and Major League Baseball's relationship going forward. Because it seems like over the last, you know, 20 years or so, since the last strike of 1994, we've had, you know, a period of kind of uh, unprecedented labor peace where the CBAs have been very easily negotiated. Uh, everyone's just kind of been content to say, things are going good, we're all making money, let's not rock the boat. Uh, this seems to be an issue in which the Major League Baseball is really tweaking the players' union uh, and and potentially burning some bridges here to where this could be an issue and the, the next time the CBA comes around, it seems almost certain that Major League Baseball is going to push for much longer suspensions for failed drug tests. And given what they did today, Rod, they might push for some kind of codified uh you know, penalty system, even when they don't have a failed test, if they have some amount of evidence that a player has, you know, tried to withhold evidence or did something to impede, impede their their investigation. And in this case, you know, A-Rod got the longest suspension in baseball history, uh, you know, besides Pete Rose or something, but for an active player, uh, and he never failed a test. Like they, they have evidence they used, but they don't have a failed test, which is what it's in the joint drug agreement, is that's what they need in order to suspend a player for even 50 games. They got three times that amount without the failed test. So, I think that that issue could potentially cause, um, you know, the union to stand up and say, you know what, we're going to protect the rights of our players. We don't like the public way this was handled. It was supposed to be confidential. Major League Baseball obviously leaked a lot of stuff, even though they'll say it wasn't them, but it clearly was. Uh, you know, I think it, it's going to be a potential issue the next time the CBA comes up for negotiation is uh, whether Major League Baseball, in its zeal to get rid of steroids, has uh harmed its um relationship with the union to the point where we might have another work stoppage. No, let me let me ask you about that. Um because uh, so th- the union has had some strong leadership um sometimes um uh, uh sometimes more of a hard line as like uh, Marvin Miller and Donald Fear um and uh, have sort of the way that they sort of uh, were in charge of things and then um Michael is it sorry was it Weiner or Weiner Weiner I think Weiner okay so Michael Weiner who um uh, uh of course passed away at the end of November um but was regarded generally as being um very excellent both sort of at um uh, creating a creating a situation where where the players were getting a fair shake and also 
he had a reputation, I know, for for working quite well um, with with the league and the owners. Um, if I'm and if I'm not mistaken, in the meantime, uh, it's it's uh, it's now Tony Clark, the former first baseman. Correct. Who's Six the head? foot seven first baseman. Yeah. Yeah, right. Who's the head of maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, besides physical intimidation, uh, do we know? Uh, you know, generally these other uh, leaders are um, have been law law students. I I, I don't know. Is, is, does Tony Clark have that background? I don't think he does, but he's really well respected among his players. He was the associate uh, uh, under Weiner for the last couple months, at least, uh, maybe longer. Uh, so he has been groomed for this position. It wasn't just a you know picked at random kind of position. Uh, he you know he has had some authority in the in the uh, players' association for a while, um, and I think you know he has uh, the kind of personality that. Uh, players respect and then will follow behind, which is pretty important. I think what we saw in 1984 is Don Fear didn't necessarily have the respect of all the players, even who's arguing on their behalf. Uh, and so there was some division in the players association at that point. Uh, Michael Weiner, Weiner certainly did not have, uh, uh, division in his ranks. Everyone unilaterally loved the guy, including some of the owners. Uh, so I think, you know, with Clark, it's maybe more of a personality choice than a law degree choice. Well, yeah, and I guess to, I mean, obviously this is the case with some positions of leadership, right? It's not necessarily, as a leader, it's not necessarily your responsibility to, um, to be, to be qualified in, in every way, in every way, right? It's to be, it's, it's to be able to serve in a, in a way that you can, um, I guess, unify people. Right, because presumably there's more than you know. It wasn't just Michael Weiner and nobody else who was right. uh, negotiating or right. uh, you know looking at the nuts and bolts. Of this so if Clark has uh, you know people with that sort of expertise, and there's also the sense that he can unify people and communicate the message uh, to the other players, and this is this is reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the same argument we make about major league managers, right? Is like, you know, if we have these guys who are not brilliant technicians and they don't necessarily understand the odds of certain plays, and, you know, if you had uh, maybe somebody who was a little bit more strong in game theory or win probability, you'd make different decisions in the field, but those guys wouldn't inspire their players to take the field and, you know, charge into battle the same way maybe Ron Washington will. So, uh, you know, I think in all of these leadership positions, it's a little bit of a balancing effect between technical expertise and actual leadership. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, God, it's just, there's not much else going on. Is there? Yeah. It, I mean, you know, I think that we're in the slowest period of yeah. uh, baseball news. So this is our chance to, uh, you know, talk about whatever we want. Would you like to, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, have a conversation about my my dog or, uh, you know, anything else that's on your mind? We could uh, talk about the weather. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the weather, the weather, huh? Yeah. We're talking yeah. about the weather now. No, yeah. the, the, this podcast uh, can be very highly rated. We have some, uh, we have some uh, Zips projections for the Rockies going up today. We do. Yeah. So that is happening. They yeah. went up, they went up recently for the Mets, uh, which sadly is, uh, missing Matt Harvey. You probably know that. Yeah. I think Mets fans will always be sad about Matt Harvey. Yeah. But otherwise, uh, pretty good. Chris Young, actually, uh, uh, Chris Young, uh, pretty good projection, according to this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's, there's a reason he was, uh, high on my list of free agent bargains. Is, uh, if you can get that kind of, you know, average, maybe slightly above average player for $7 million on a one-year deal, that's, that's a good, that's a good contract. Yeah. Better projection than Curtis Granderson. Does that surprise you? No, cause I think, uh, Young is a little younger and Zips really likes, uh, or, you know, Zips is a big fan of the age curve where it's gonna, it's gonna harm older players a lot more than it is gonna be a guy like Young who's I think only 31. 
Do you anticipate him uh, remaining forever young? Uh, probably not. I don't think that Chris Young is undead. Uh, yeah. I could be wrong, but uh, I, I don't believe he's a zombie. Uh, right. And uh, let's see. We we did the Reds. Zip's projections for the Reds. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I think the interesting thing about the Reds that, uh, were how different the projections were for the pitchers than the Steamer projections. Because usually Zip's and Steamer are pretty close. I mean, they're both good projection systems. They have similar underpinnings. Uh, I think the main difference with Steamer is they kind of set themselves apart by incorporating velocity, and then since then Dan Zimborski has also incorporated velocity into his Zips projections. But usually they're pretty close, except for on the Reds. The Reds staff comes out really well by Zips and pretty mediocre by Steamer, uh, which I think is maybe the most stark difference I've seen of any team so far. Well, I know it's been the case for Johnny Cueto, and I'm prepared to believe it's the case for some other pitchers in that club that they have um, maybe done a little bit more in the way of run prevention by means that are not uh, directly measured by um, dips type of numbers. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's mostly just Cueto, though. Lados and Leak and uh, Singrani don't really fall into that category. Hmm. Well, is it possible that the Reds have a better defense than average? Uh, possible, depending on what you think of Billy Hamilton in center field, but I don't think that anyone thinks this is like the best defensive team anyone's ever seen, and I think both Zips and Steamer try to take defense into account, so. Yeah, man, yeah, bringing yeah. up a lot of, uh, I, lot I of think points. that the two systems just disagree on these four or five pitchers, which hmm. is interesting. So. Yeah. Uh, Billy Hamilton, 2.5, uh, projection. Yeah. Win projection. I think, uh, I would probably take the under. Yeah, but the, uh, a lot of it has to do, uh, with the batting average on ball and play. Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, what does that what does that look like historically for very fast players? I mean, I think we know that it's above average because they can get infield hits, they can get butt hits, but it's not that fast players have high BABIPs uh, universally. It's not a rule where if you're as fast as Billy Hamilton, you're going to post a 350 BABIP. Uh, I think we've seen guys like Luis Castillo and guys along that lines who've been you know closer to 300 because they don't hit the ball that hard. I think what we see is BABIP is maybe more tied to line drive rate than it is foot speed and you know sometimes these guys uh with the skill set don't generally hit a lot of line drives and if i suppose if you could do both then that's yeah. very good but, i mean that you know that's feature of suzuki model where um you know when he came over he was uh hitting line drives all over the place and getting bunts and getting infield hits and so he would run 360 370 babups and you know almost sustain them for a decade right and uh, i mean that, that might have been the case with uh I think that I think Matt Kemp uh, traditionally has quite a high BABIP. Um, same That's, thing with Josh I think Hamilton. More, more line drives than speed in those cases, though. Okay. All right. It's fine. I'm not angry I don't about think it. You see Matt Kemp getting too many bunt hits, right? No, but uh, yeah, but but uh, if you have both, then the, the chances because Matt Kemp has been fast in the. Uh, he's he's always been more of a uh, uh, hard hitter who then runs well, like a good athlete who hits, than a fast guy who, you know, sprays line drives. I don't think I would use Matt Kemp as a argument for Billy Hamilton's high BABIP. Yeah, I won't do it. Yeah. Okay, I'll stop doing it. Good. Okay. We've gotten, we've gotten to that conclusion. Let's stop. Let's stop. Yeah, I think that's that's probably wise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, well, yeah, but uh, in the meantime, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Dave Cameron. And I guess uh, till two weeks from now. Yes, I will be, uh, unless I die on the ski slopes of West Virginia, uh, then I will be returning in two weeks. Hopefully I do not die. Oh, has but, the uh, Michael Schumacher story made its way to the United States? It has. We we do know that he uh, hit a tree really hard, so I'm uh, going to try to avoid yeah. those. Was it a tree or a rock? I, I thought it was a tree, but it uh, could be a rock. He Some might have tripped over, yeah, it was bad. Yeah. Yeah.
Um, well, so don't do that. Don't go, uh, the, the term for going off the slope here is or piste. Don't go or piste. Uh, okay. I, I, yeah, I think since my wife's only been skiing, uh, twice in her life, we're probably not going to go off the, the, the groomed runs. Don't go or piste. Or piste, yes, we won't yeah. do that. Okay, don't do it. Alright. Yeah. Uh, thank you for being here, Dave Cameron, and look forward to it in two weeks from now. Uh, I I don't, but thank you. Okay, that's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. This has been a, a very thorough <laughs> edition of Fangraphs Audio, uh, and uh, thank you for being here. You're welcome. It's done. Bye. Bye.